Good evening to you. Um, here at the park for the second to the last night that I'm gonna have to stay here, and I can truly say I'm not gonna miss it. Well, yeah, I'm not gonna miss it. I've uh, thought a lot about um, the analogies to what this place is and everything today, and the Chinese have something called Tibet and the road to Tibet and uh, it's well known that monks and everything make the so yearn and people from other countries actually go up to these mountains to not talk for years on end and to me um, Hollywood and actually being homeless is the equivalent of that it's I mean with the way that my culture works here in the United States it's just uh, we're a country that's based on media that's based on image and to understand the importance of, of image you almost have to withdraw from image you have to um, sever your ties to the typical and give yourself the opportunity just to be a bystander and uh, while I haven't wholly been a bystander the simple fact of the matter is I I've been homeless and I really there's been absolutely no expectations by anybody of me as a homeless guy and how I should look and how I should appear and if anything there's kind of an expectation that uh, I appear much worse than I am so to put things in perspective and everything and to actually be an outsider looking in on society and everything for the last four and a half years here in uh, Hollywood and five and a half years total as a homeless guy it's I'll go so far to say this is my equivalent of what it would be like to be in China to to retreat and actually become a monk for you know for a number of years. It's been healing. I'll, I'll say that in its own weird way. I mean, it's without hesitation. It's really tested me, you know, mentally and psychologically and just emotionally. I mean, I would, you know, that's one thing that uh, I didn't expect. You know, well, I didn't know what to expect, you know, to be honest, going into all this. But um, I'm glad to say that it's coming to a close as I sit out here cupping my balls because it makes them feel warm out here in the chilly air. Nobody could really, care, you know, anybody walking by is just like, hey, there's a dude in the dark down there. You know, they can't tell if I have my hands in my pants or anything like that. And I don't fucking care if they, if they could or couldn't. You know, the fact of the matter is it keeps them warm. So, but, I had a really interesting day when it came down to, I love being right underneath the flight path for uh, big jets. I love seeing them. That's not, no sarcasm. Next time, remind me to actually, uh, choose to be homeless next to an airport I'll probably never leave so <coughs> it's been an interesting day I uh, I had a lot of people actually come up to me and you know just a lot of support really kind of surprised me Maggie the uh, the manager of Starbucks she ended up taking me out for lunch with uh, with Chase and you know, she recanted the story about when we first met, which is about two and a half years ago, and she came into the store with the blazing intention to clean up the place and how she ended up going through and talking to all the homeless people right away and 
you know, she noted right away how I differentiated myself from the rest of uh, the homeless people and how uh, how it put things into perspective for her. And she's offered me three jobs, uh, you know, jobs three on three separate occasions throughout the uh, two and a half years that I've been there. And uh, I've resisted. I mean, it's not that I wouldn't, um, well, it's just I just don't want to. It's not that I don't respect her as a person or anything like that. It's just like I know how, how hard those folks work. And for me, if I had any money that went into a bank account, it'd immediately be seized. So what's the use when I'd be right back here on the streets anyways? More stress? <laughs> you know, screw that. I've been there, done that, got that card. But uh, it was nice because she ended up coming out and just, you know, fondly remembered. She goes, uh, you know, she made the comment, that uh, she was glad to have met me and uh, glad to, uh, you know, every, just went on to say that every member of their team loves me and loves me around, and it definitely made me feel good. <coughs> you know, and I feel like to some degree I've contributed culturally and everything to the area, at least in some minor fashion and everything. And, um, you know, she, I, I, I like to think that before all this started and before anybody started coming up to me, but actually having it asserted, you know, through, you know, somebody like that, that's actually managing the place or other people around and everything. It just definitely, uh, definitely made me feel good. So had her do that, had, uh, had another guy, um, George, he's an artist and, uh, he ended up, uh, coming down today just to shake my hand and bid me adieu and wish me, uh, wish me luck and everything. Um, Harvey, he's a lawyer. Um, he's wanting to take my case and, you know, we've, we've been discussing it off and on over a number of years and everything. And he just, uh, finally ended up telling me, you know, what, uh, what I'm going to need to put it all together. So he's got an itemized list. He ended up handing me today and he was just like, sorry, I took so long to do this. He goes, he's actually got two sons that he's been working with. Um, you know, when it comes down to special education and that kind of stuff. So I haven't pressured the guy, and I I didn't, uh, you know, since he was doing the work pro bono and everything for me, it was one of those things I I just didn't want to look a gift horse in the eye. When the guy got around to it, he, he did. And uh, statute of limitations states that there's no limitation on the amount of time that we can actually go back and get the money, and uh, particularly if it's been seized by the government uh, as a felony. So in any case... Um, you know, I've got to go through my former accounts, uh, Ameritrade, E-Trade, um, Charles Schwab account that I had, uh, Wells Fargo accounts, and basically itemize and provide proof, if I can, of the assets being there and the seizures that ended up happening. The property that I had in Costa Rica, which is part of the reason I ended up heading south of the border to begin with, uh, $3 million in personal assets that I had more or less seized and everything, which actually led to me being homeless, and um, the $8 million contractually that was owed to me, too, and just basically all the circumstantial evidence I worked for, you know, for the NSA for that period of time and everything. So, it's just one of those things that, um, it's just, it was nice actually having the guy, uh, you know, come down here and just basically chat about it today, and you know, say that, uh, sorry it took him this long for me, me to get out of here, but he does want to take it, and here's the things, and we can work at a distance on it. So, anyways, uh, wished him a do today, and 
And there's uh, Patrick. Uh, Patrick's been a guy that uh, he's come down there off and on. He's basically he's bitched about his roommate and that kind of stuff. And I'm help. I've helped him out morally when it comes down to being able to uh, not kill the guy. You know, so he's he's got a little bit of a fierce attitude, a little bit like mine. And he's a he's actually a former box, boxer. So the difference between me and him is he's physically probably come close to doing it to people um, a lot more than I ever have. Or I'll end a lot. Uh, we'll put it this way: he's well equipped to do it, and uh, I just—I'm um, glad I've actually talked him through these things and made me realize that uh, you know, it's—I've heard certainly. I mean, I can't say I've actually stopped anything or or prevented anything. Had I been around, all this stuff probably would have been just the same as it was without me around, anyways. But it just—it felt good. You know, to actually have quite a few people come up to me today and just basically, you know, shake my hand, give me a hug, and, you know, just basically say that uh, they're glad to have been a part of uh, my life and that they're glad that uh, I was a part of theirs and, you know, that uh, hopefully that this isn't permanently it, you know, and that maybe one day I might want to come back. And I, I told them, yeah, if, if the conditions, if I actually had a... Uh, had an apartment and I had a um, you know source of income and everything that uh, was you know allowed me to live the lifestyle I wanted then absolutely I'd, I'd definitely consider this to be one of the uh, primary locations I'd want to be I like the attitude and personality of most of the people here and with the exception of the uh, get a homeless shit that I have to deal with on a on a regular basis here at the campsite you know I can certainly deal with it at a, uh, at a Starbucks and everything that's not that big a deal there it's irritating without hesitation but you know it's nowhere near as irritating having to deal with the shit the same shit at nighttime only escalated even worse and being threatened uh, you know in the dark by people that uh, when there's absolutely no one around and all I am is left to my own amends to be able to defend myself so in any case, um, yeah, so I, uh, got the, uh, the money from Western Union today for my parents, I'm gonna go down tomorrow and do my laundry, I don't want to be a stinky bastard on that, uh, on that bus ride, and I'm gonna go pick up the ticket tomorrow, uh, as I do right after I do my laundry, hop the rail for the last, uh, one of the last, uh, one, one, two, three times, so I'm gonna hop the rail going there tomorrow, and so I'm gonna hop it to go there, you know, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that's just, it's been a, it's been a good day. I mean, it's a rich day when it comes down to the support and everything. It's made me feel good. You know, it, uh, Billy came in, that was one of the funny things. Billy Washington, he's a, um, he's a writer, director, producer, he grew up in Hollywood pretty much and uh, he was a stuntman in movies like Terminator and uh, things like Terminator 2 actually and everything else since then. He's been in more things than, than most people I've ever read about and everything and he's a uh, he's constantly he's sitting, he sits next to me at uh, Starbucks on a regular basis and you know tip, a lot of times I'll save him a seat and everything because he's uh, regular with his timing and everything and I'll help him out with his grammar all the time, or finding words, being the living thesaurus, and coming up with uh, ideas for how to actually make his script uh, sound a little bit more um, intellectual, you know, when he's actually presenting it and everything. 
and at least putting different words in there than what he was doing before. And uh, it's been an uh, it's been a, a a good time talking to that guy too. And yeah, it's just um, I'm I'm really I'm really proud to have actually been a been I don't know I mean feel like I contributed to this world in my own unique ways that may be incalculable. Now it's just um. I don't know. It just definitely made me feel good. So, here I am tonight in the park, uh, just kicking back, looking at the Universal City sign, the cranes standing next to it, and I remember when I came in here, you know, it was like uh, four and a half years ago. I mean, I'd been in here literally dozens of times before. But when I first saw that sign after coming in from Latin America and everything, I just sat there and I felt like I was proud to be here. You know, I felt like I was actually coming here, and like I talked about before yesterday, you know, to actually make it in Hollywood. But um, now that I'm leaving, I'm just realizing that I want to help other people make it, but I'm interested in the creative energy. I'm interested in understanding my own creative energy and applying that creative energy in ways that maybe only I, I know how, you know, as a programmer, you know, as a, uh, as, a, as a different kind of storyteller. You know, the whole concept and idea of Q in Star Trek is he's a, he's a man that fabricates entire worlds that for all intents and purposes... He could be leveraging technology to achieve that. He could be leveraging a holodeck, you know, an d- advanced version of a holodeck or something like that, or um, virtual reality, you know, an advanced version of an Oculus VR or something like that. Um, but I, while that in itself could potentially be the truth, the truth I chose to actually believe in you know, when it came down to uh, Q and Star Trek, is that's not technology. That's just the power that one person has with their mind alone to be able to, you know, intentionally and instantly teleport themselves from one end of the galaxy to another at at literally the speed of thought. Will. The power of will. If you want to analogize it to Star Wars and the Force, the Force is is something that's pervasive. It's all throughout everything that's mentioned in the Star Wars universe. You have the capability to be able to, or Jedi's have the capability to be able to manipulate this thing called the Force, in order to remotely manipulate objects, to um, grab somebody's throat if you're Darth Vader, or to be able to pull a lightsaber out of the ice in order to cut yourself off the, uh, you know, if you're Luke Skywalker, to cut yourself off the, um, off the ceiling. The Force itself is, is something that, if you analyze it, it's, it's the interconnectedness of all reality. And it's real. There's no doubt in my mind that that's real. So, 
Last night I mentioned that tonight's topic is about the mind and mind control and MK Ultra and that kind of stuff. And that's that's how I'm going to start. It's just basically talk about the Force, you know, in Star Trek, and uh, what that is, and also look at it and compare it to Star Wars or to a uh, Star Trek and actually that universe and uh, the concept of Q and other beings that have the capability to be able to alter alter the flow of time or to to sense and detect and and uh, and more or less break out of causal loops and that kind of stuff. They're stuck in a loop, and all of a sudden something makes them realize it. Um, and that's something that, um, in itself, it just comes down to, if you've ever seen the uh, TV show Westworld, I'm talking about the new one, one of the interesting concepts in it is there's a... Well, all the robots, uh, they end up having their memories regularly updated so they're they go through and one of them you know could live a couple years as a prostitute um and then all of a sudden they'll erase her memories you know of that prostitute lifestyle and everything and at that point they'll actually convert her over to be a church going girl you know same body same face same everything you know, but they literally erase her memories as a, as an android, as a robot, and at that point they end up taking that same woman that was a prostitute that was charging two pennies for, you know, for sex or something like that in a saloon, you know, to now she's standing or she's sitting in the front row of, of the church and she's more or less, you know, preaching to everybody about how how her and God have always been one and the same and all this other type of stuff and everything. You know, where she's a father's uh, father's child and everything. Um, they have Indians in this thing where they'll, you know, they'll create killers out of them by basically making it so where they will go out and scalp, um, scalp the other androids that they end up, uh, you know, meeting out, out on the roads and everything. All the way to... Um, you know, people that have the regular jobs and that kind of stuff. So where, you know, somebody that's uh, the the barkeep or, you know, somebody that's actually playing the piano, they'll teach them all the things, you know, they'll program their mind in a literal sense directly, leveraging a computer. They'll upload a program to their mind. They'll erase what was there. They're, they'll put in and install a new program. And combined with their personality profile, they adapt the program to their needs, and at that point, they end up doing what they do. Well, once once I started really paying attention to this, this whole process, you know, with Westworld and everything, um, I became extremely intrigued. You know, I've looked at uh, at games like like um, World of Warcraft, um, like EverQuest, and um, so many other different games that I played throughout my life and everything. And I've always challenged and constantly questioned the notion of how death is presented. You know, so in World of Warcraft, for instance, you you die and you're instantly resurrected as a spirit. At the, lo at the closest cemetery to where you're at, and at that point you have to run nearby your corpse, and at that point you are brought back to life. So up until the point you are living literally in the spirit realm, up until the point that you actually get back all the way back to your corpse no matter where it is, you know, and typically it's not that far, I mean no more than 10 minutes away if you're walking, and uh, at that point, you more or less resurrect, um, and you're basically back at that point and everything, 
in full body and you've got all your armor and your gear on. Well, one of the things I've thought about uh, is comparing this to like Westworld. So in Westworld, none of these people have any continuity problems when it comes down to um, their memories. You know, so they believe that the story of their life, you know, for instance, the one girl that's 24 years old, um, that appears 24 years old, you know, who in actuality is, a, is an android that's been updated literally hundreds of times and has, has lived or has, has been in service for 100 plus years, you know, um, but she appears 24 now, the continuity for her life basically says, I've lived for 24 years. I have consistency in memory that's only occurred for 24 years. Now, in those 24 years, let's say she's the church-going version of herself, or that, that at least that's the program that's currently installed in everything. And as that church-going girl, she, you know, she may have had something happen with her, with her father and everything when she was 15 years old, um, with, or I'm sorry, with, with somebody that may have tried to hurt her when she was 15 years old and at that point her father came to came to the rescue I'm just throwing this out as a possible storyline and everything and at this point she ended up seeking solace with what happened between her father and this man that her father may have killed um, because of her and she may have actually gone to God well that's one lifetime maybe in, in another lifetime that story was similar but there was a deviation in that and that deviation was she never told her told her father about that event at 15 years old and at that point um, the storyline continues she ends up basically uh, finding out and discovering that she enjoyed sex and from 15 to 18 years old uh, she ends up starting to go work as a prostitute and everything and and lo and behold she ends up uh, having you know now she's 24 she's you know 15 nine years older and everything from that one single pivotal event that's actually been programmed into her two separate lives but one pivotal event that basically says okay you know for each of these different events well you know here's here's the interesting thing um, towards the end of Westworld all the robots androids start getting their memories back you know, and not only that, it's not just for the times that uh, that have happened within their own lifetime about how many times they've been shot and killed and all this other stuff and everything. You know, so within the course of one life, you know, they, you know, every day they could die every fucking day from a gunfight, from a rape, from, um, from uh, drowning, from any number of different things, you know, most of the time at the guest's hands, but other times, you know, due to any number of different events that happen inside this world and everything. Well, all the androids start receiving, start getting their memories back, and they end up becoming overloaded. They have a hard time with it. So what ends up happening is it, uh, it just causes, that's a, one of the chief reasons that ends up causing a big, huge uprising. Um, from the robot community, you know, to, you know, to the quote-unquote creators or makers, you know, that basically say what you're doing with us is wrong. Well, to the to the creators, you know, that that created these things. To them, you know, these these robots aren't necessarily, um, they're not human. They're not. They're not. You know, they're they're regarded as not that much different than I regard a car. Or that I regard the tent that I'm, I'm living in and everything. These inorganic things, while they may look similar to a human and everything, 
You know, um, it's like my computer system. I program my computer system, but I've never really considered my computer to be alive. Now, I'm not saying that it's not. Don't get me wrong. You know, because I've since learned to basically keep in mind and consider that everything could be potentially alive. And that includes a computer system um, that I program on on a regular basis and play my games with and everything, um, all the way to this iPod uh, Touch, um, all the way to, you know, the the tree that I'm, I'm sleeping next to. You know, I've, I've really gone so far to consider all these things as being possible anymore. <coughs> and it comes down to um, the, the concept of the Force. You know, the interconnected nature of reality has a fundamental basis in reality because of the mind. And this is actually what I was getting into yesterday, was uh, a program called MKUltra back in the 1960s. Um, It started off as a a program that more or less was interested in testing the mind's resilience to psychological warfare, particularly by people that were actually confronted with it in wartime situations and everything. They were concerned because of uh, some of the things that had happened in North Korea, or during the Korean War, Um, they were concerned about those, those events escalating, particularly Vietnam, and that the, you know, that the opposition would be using um, psychological warfare, not only that, but drug-related tactics in order to basically overcome and, and more or less <laughs> incapacitate the troops. So, what, ha- what ended up happening is uh, the CIA ended up taking some research that they ended up uh, re- receiving from World War II era Nazi Germany and hallucinogenics at this point and, and also the leveraging of all, all kinds of known substances that influence behavior and behavioral patterns and also um, vision and, and hearing and this kind of stuff. And at that point they started actively uh, experimenting on it to, um, if anything, create, uh, understand what the perfect soldier was. The whole idea of the super soldier and all that kind of stuff and everything is absolutely based in reality. Captain America and all that kind of stuff is absolutely based in reality. Um, but that's actually not what, what started it all, though. What started it all was, uh, I mean, back in World War II when this stuff was originally starting to go on and everything, it was like a snipe hunt. They didn't have any fucking clue what they were doing. You know, alchemy was still something that was being widely practiced in everything. And modern medicine, as it, as it, as it stands right now, um, was very, very... I mean, you got to understand, back then, penicillin had barely come out. You know, so they weren't fully understanding the implications of, you know, of uh, antibiotics when it related to the human body, let alone the mind's relationship to the body. You know, let alone the mind's relationship to the world, on, uh, world around us, too. So during the 1960s and 1970s, this program called MKUltra was, uh, was created. And the specific purpose of MKUltra was to basically to test out, uh, test out human subjects for being able to program them in a literal sense. You know, so uh, the born, um, born identity along with, uh, what was it, the off-something conspiracy. Um, they're based on a soldier that has been specifically trained to be an assassin um, silently, you know, but with one huge caveat. 
that soldier himself isn't aware of the training that he's been through. So, that soldier has actually been implanted and embedded with memories, you know, the, to lead him to believe that everything that he thought he knew about himself and everything is a lie. So, this, this is actually based on something called MKUltra. So MKUltra is basically, it's a plan, it's a program to understand um, a couple things. Number one, the seat of consciousness. Was it possible to know where consciousness was in an analytical, rational, modern, physics-based sense? Could you actually isolate it to such a degree, you know, that you can actually um, shift somebody's uh, consciousness? You know, and also, what, what was specifically possible if you can actually um, achieve a, a lock-on where somebody's consciousness was? That was number one uh, concern and, you know, just what they were interested in uh, trying to achieve and everything. Um, but, the, but the secondary, and actually what, uh, what could be considered the primary secondary con uh, concern goal was to be able to program anybody successfully with a hundred percent without failure. How do you actually achieve 100% capability of being able to reprogram somebody in such a profound fashion that you can make them do anything, become a robot to you? That was the goal. Now, ethically and morally and all this kind of stuff, um, this wasn't actually, this is something that uh, the presidents weren't actually aware of. Um, what was it? Uh, Majestic 12 was something that came out in the 1950s. And when JFK actually uh, became president at this point, this is actually, he ended up putting a kibosh on some of the, um, some of the mind control programs that were going on. They were interested in, in basically free will. And uh, that was actually part of the thing that, you know, when he, he was actually a part of, understanding the uh, Maj Majestic 12 stuff that was going on. And I, I know I'm not using proper phrasing with all this stuff. I only became aware of it towards the tail end of me working at the NSA. But uh, what the Majestic 12 was, was uh, some of the information that had been procured from Nazi Germany and everything during World War II when it came down to experiments on the mind and that kind of stuff. <coughs> particularly when in concentration camps and that kind of stuff um, that was actually taken over uh, by both the Russians and the United States and everything and you know we we began leveraging it in our own ways well what ended up happening with uh, Majestic 12 is they're one of the one of the groups that leveraged this information in secrecy and it was a group of people that worked and interacted uh, between people that were in government and people that were in the military so they acted as liaison, as coordination, um, particularly with some of the Senate and House leaders and that kind of stuff to make sure funding always persisted for these programs and that kind of stuff. And it was just one of those things that uh, it was of such concern, you know, at all levels of understanding the mind and how how the mind worked and what what you know comp what what created free will, um, what what made it possible for somebody to actually be programmed because it, it, they had evidence that this had, ac had actually been occurring on a regular basis anyways, you know, and uh, they were concerned about um, it being used in a subversive way and everything, much to the detriment of pretty much everybody, and anybody and everybody. So that was actually one of the biggest concerns. And um, 
So, in once JFK became president, among the things that he ended up stepping on for toes was the CIA's, because the CIA was in bed with Majestic 12, and once he ended up putting the kibosh on this program at that point, it pretty much put him in the, uh, in the, gun, in the gunning range. And um, the, the same thing ended up happening with one of my favorite presidents of all time, which is Nixon. And uh, Nixon um, had gotten word that MKUltra had specifically authorized and, and had actually sent out uh, drugs that were being used for mind control and particularly hallucinogenic type stuff and everything to influence the mind of the soldiers that were actually over there and uh, to basically test out their ideas and concepts in a, in a field type capacity and everything during wartime situation. Now this was actually being done by our own troops or, or on our own troops and that's actually what I consider is kind of the messed up part about it. And uh, among the reasons I wasn't, wasn't happy um, with having to sign up you know, for the U.S. Army and everything when I ended up uh, going into the NSA was I realized how the liberties that are stripped from you as an individual in order to basically enter the United States or any, enter any of the um, armed forces and everything allow them the capability to do anything they want to with you physically. So if they want to um, you know, if you're a woman and they want to sell you as a sex slave and everything to an Arab nation for the eight years that you're in service and everything, uh, you have absolutely no recourse. And they can legally do that. Now, when I'm saying legally, you know, um, that's, that's that fine line. The thing is, you'll never see something like this in the press uh, before. And, and this, this is the kind of stuff that I don't know if that kind of stuff actually does happen. I've suspected some of that stuff does happen, you know. But uh, but I've I've you know we'll just put it this way: some of the weird things that happen when it comes down to joining the military and everything is just I was concerned, you know, because of the flippant disregard that there is for human individuality and for humanity when it comes down to you joining the armed forces. But I did anyways because I thought I was doing the right thing and everything, and especially joining the civilian service in the NSA. But uh, it's the type of thing that uh, once I got into it, it's just like, okay, well, maybe I don't know quite what happened and what I bit off here, but it is what it is. So getting back to MKUltra, um, back in the 1970s, uh, this, this program uh, was specifically targeted and actually started working with Hollywood. And uh, at this point, um, they started working with some key figures uh, here in Hollywood that were actually the movers and shakers and everything that uh, were more or less uh, taught some of the methods that can actually do, uh, do mind manipulation at a distance through, uh, through processes that are actually have come uh, to be known as neuro-linguistic programming. And uh, neuro-linguistic programming is the capability to be able to leverage certain methods and styles of communication in order to become more effective with your communication. So effective that you can quite literally entrance other people with your communication. 
you know so if you've ever seen movies about vampires and you know somebody falling under the spell of a vampire or something like that well somebody that actually leverages neuro-linguistic programming in a very effective way has the capability to be able to have the same kind of capabilities they they become um, somebody that it's hard to not listen to or hard to not watch you know, and there's been a lot of people that have been on TV and in the movies and everything that, you know, you got certain people that you just want to go see at the movies and everything. And there's a lot of people that feel the same way too. And you got to wonder where that popularity comes from. Well, pay attention to a couple things. You know, and this is actually what I implored you to get into. And this is actually what what, what the CIA learned uh, through their their program. Um, Number one, the biggest thing that they learned is there's no 100% effective way of, of universally um, programming and reprogramming somebody's mind. Zero, zilch, nada. You know, end of story. That was one thing that they ended up learning. However, what they learned was um, through effective media communications and particularly the application of neuro-linguistic programming combined with effective, uh, effective forms of, of body language and body language training, you then have the double capability to be able to entrance somebody in a hip hypnotic way to basically um, at that point get whatever it is that you want, want out of them. So... In a sense, what you do, you know, with the, with these things, with neurolinguistic programming, it's using uh, some of the primary forms of neurolinguistic programming. It's called anchoring, you know. And I know I talked about uh, some of the forms of neurolinguistic programming before, and uh, you know, it's it was publicly released uh, through Bandler, Richard Bandler and John Grinder. But this is actually more something that was privately held you know, by intelligence agencies and, you know, they realize that, that the power of these things and the way to mitigate the risk was to actually make it public because they had realized by the time they discovered this that leaders, particularly foreign leaders, were being extremely effective with this anyways. And they learned that the best way to mitigate the risk was to actually expose that risk to people and offer training in it. Now, now here's the thing, and this is actually something that they learned, and this is this is actually where I got to give the, the CIA kudos. They learned early on that inoculation of the mind works in the same fashion than inoculation of the human body, and if you actually start working on creating an immunity within within the minds of the people you know, to these various forms of manipulation and everything, you know, and in the body, you know, for instance, you can obtain cancer, you can obtain the cold, you can obtain all these different illnesses and all this other kind of stuff and everything. Well, you know, the body is a manifestation of the mind. It's a creation of the mind. Your mind has a direct correlation to the body, and that's something that started at your childbirth. You know, so your mind, through a series of processes that were led through the DNA, ran a program in the matrix of reality, if you want to call it that, and that program, in combination with your own thoughts and ideas and, and interpretation of the world that you saw, ultimately ended up creating, creating that version of you. 
you know, and everything that you have that happens to you physically, <coughs> internally, is a is a direct correlation, you know, between your your body, you know, the environment around you, the stimulation that's going on with that environment, and your own mind. In a lot of cases, it's interpretation of the information, and also the uh, the the sustenance that you're actually feeding it. You know, so what the what the CIA did that, in my opinion, was fucking brilliant, was they found um, authorized actors, people that would actually release the information that they discovered. You know, and at that point, rather than keep it secret and basically segment it towards the, you know, the people that they felt might deserve it and everything, they started questioning their own methods, especially with what happened with JFK and even more so when, when what happened with Nixon ended up happening. You know, they knew that those people within their own ranks and everything that would would otherwise rather dismantle the the American government and everything, and starting with the presidency and the legitimacy of the presidency, you know, so rather than than stand that opportunity for new research, they made it a, a fact to actually enhance their distribution channels by putting this information and making it public, and actually doing this through public people, people that told great stories. Well, they learned that in part by basically working with Hollywood on this. You know, and that's actually what started the the strong, convicted relationship, you know, of the CIA with the uh, with Hollywood. Now, a lot of people, you know, um, I've seen on the internet have this belief, this conspiratorial belief, you know, that Hollywood is in bed with the CIA, and it's all some big, huge, nasty conspiracy. Okay, let me tell you this. Yes. Hollywood is in bed with the CIA. The CIA is an intelligence agency. You know, so let's be clear about that. They're there to gather intelligence, information about the world around us, and when they find and discover things that don't necessarily fit in predefined easy buckets for most people to understand... Well, at that point, they'll turn around and they'll find their own distribution channels for it to basically make sure that the American public's aware of it in their own way. You know, and, and there's, there's a couple times, and they've got, they've got a couple different reasons for doing this. So let's say they've got new technology. You know, and the NSA has been something that does this as well, too. So let's say they've got new technology that they discover through their own mechanisms. Now, they're not going to release the mechanisms, but a lot of times you can actually detect where those mechanisms are from. Well, at that point, they might work with, you know, foreign, uh, with certain, uh, certain foreign figures and everything. And uh, just basically, let's say they don't want the, the technology here in the United States, but they don't mind other countries working on this and us potentially buying this from other countries and everything. So... CIA has been known to actually distribute information, you know, that can actually cause technological progress for other, other countries, particularly when other countries exhibit a greater capacity to be able to do the things that are necessary in order to be able to achieve, achieve that kind of technology. Now, what gives them the authority for this? Well, president himself. You know, any president that's actually in office is, is advocating, you know, the current system. By by the sheer fact that they take oath for an office, that oath also also encompasses the belief 
in the system that, uh, that they've actually taken the oath for. The belief in the Constitution, the belief in the bicameral system, the belief in um, the belief in the intelligence agencies that actually support it. You know, um, they'll get briefed the moment that they get in about what the CIA and the NSA are responsible for. You know, the NSA is basically the mind, and the and the CIA is basically the brain. Um, you know, the other agencies that flit into and out of existence at the blink of an eye, i.e. Homeland Security and that kind of stuff, to mitigate the risk and threat of certain things and understand what happened, you know, particularly when nasty things ended up happening. You know, and, uh, and basically any time any president takes office, they're there to support, promote, and basically sustain... You know, the continuance of the United States. That's their primary job. You know, and the continuance is, you know, just basically saying, look, we believe here in life, liberty, and happiness. Not the pursuit of happiness, happiness. You know, it shouldn't be a pursuit. It's actual happiness. And the things that make us happy, well, I'm completely taking a left turn on this and I know that you probably want to hear hear something conspiratorial well so let's put it this way the CIA uh, started working with the uh, the US government or with the um, with Hollywood uh, back in about 1971 and uh, through a series of different things they ended up uh, taking and creating material that uh, at that point ended up helping and end prematurely Vietnam War. Now, the Vietnam War, from corporate interests, was expected to go well into the 1980s. It had actually been earmarked as something that would be profitable far longer than it was supposed to go on for those that are actually interested in making money from the situation. But uh, the CIA, fortunately, along with um, President Nixon, basically disagreed with this, uh, this whole concept of creating war and, and basically putting uh, human lives, or particularly American lives, at continued risk on a regular basis, particularly when there are other elements that are actually interested in leveraging you know, drugs and, and that kind of stuff to basically uh, put human lives continuously, um, not just at risk, but basically causing problems with their minds and everything as a result. So... This is something that they ended up basically putting a kibosh on pretty quickly um, once they got involved with the media and everything. So by the time 1973 rolled around, at that point they ended up uh, formalizing the MK Ultra plan, which was basically the whole concept of understanding the mind, the influences that were actually causing the resistance, you know, to basically the the the, sus the sustained happiness of a country. And, uh, and, and at that point, to also start uh, investing a lot more time in, in what, was, what was this concept called happiness. You know, what was this, uh, this whole concept of, um, of free will? You know, what, what was the mind in general? And this is actually a lot of what actually ended up persisting um, and creating the, 
the strength of this, the NSA as it stands today. Now, the CIA started realizing that there's a lot of things they want to do, that they want to focus on. And as they, as they were focusing on things, they, they liked the secret agency that they had, you know, the ability to be, be able to send spies out and some of the spy games that they ended up playing with other countries and that kind of stuff. And rest assured, they were games, you know, the KGB and that kind of stuff and everything with MI6. Um, there's a lot of people that just want to play spies, you know, and were entertained by people that want to play spies. So it's hard not to want to actually let the world and let the people around the world do these things, you know, and those people that want to do these things, let them. Let them believe that they're making the world be a better place. Give them all the evidence that they want to. And at that point, that's what ended up happening. Was the the CIA ended up uh, at this point in about 1971 to about 1975, they ended up divesting themselves of the MK Ultra plan, which was more or less focused on development and understanding of the human mind. Um, and at that point, they ended up focusing on the brain and also uh, with that technology that was associated directly with material things. So during, during this time period, it was interesting because you saw the NSA had already been an organization that was focused on information. But with this information, um, there wasn't any, um, any central... Kind of concept that let it basically say this is a part of you know they didn't have an analogy for the human body so at this point and that's actually what a lot of organizations within the united states try to do they actually try intentionally to leverage the human body i mean the whole concept of bicameral uh nature is based on the concept of the human brain it's split into two parts. You got the creative part, and you have the analytical part. Well, guess who's the creative part? <laughs> Your guess is as good as fucking mine too. <laughs> so, anyways, um, but but the fact of the matter is, you have two different parts. You know, you got the Senate and the House. You have um, you know these these checks and balances, which are modeled after the human brain. You know, the whole idea and concept of the president as an individual is the person leading this body which they always refer to as body of government well the analogy is a metaphor it's a metaphor to you know to the governmental systems and everything and that's what the president is is the head of this bicameral organization and everything so in any case um it was about about this point that uh, you know so 71 to 75 the NSA started taking over the responsibility uh, more of understanding the mind they wanted to take information and have a way to be able to map it to the human uh, the human being you know how is it a you know how is it you take information sift through it logically intellectually you know um, logically that's the big thing now it's one thing having physical storage space and everything and that's the beauty of the CIA the CIA wanted to work and, and specifically focus on uh, the development of technology and working directly with the agencies particularly the media and everything in order to basically promote 
and maybe help develop new new ways and ideas for technology from a physical perspective and everything, you know, and maybe that relationship would allow them to basically progress the nation and everything further, you know, so, and the whole concept was the NSA would act as a, a reciprocative relationship at that point, and they would actually feed um, information to the CIA, you know, and basically feed the needs of the organization you know so when when we say we need this kind of storage space and everything well, the the CIA would be responsible for saying okay well you know we'll get you that storage space and everything well part of the problem that actually started occurring very quickly bef uh, before the 1980s was the explosion of information because at that point that's when the uh, the NSA started capturing all the information and everything you know for the country and um, at that point, uh, they basically started getting overloaded. And as a direct result of this, the CIA started pushing back. And, started, uh, and if one of the first things that they started pushing back on, uh, those two primary avenues they started pushing back on and saying that it was impossible. Number one was processing speed and, uh, and power. And number two was storage space. Well, I mean, these, these two primary resources were, were needed to sift through the impossible amount of information that were already being gathered by the NSA on a real-time basis and everything. And uh, what they ended up doing at that point was they ended up saying, you know, they ended up taking some of the mine technology, you know, some of the things that, uh, that the CIA, CIA had done. And at that point, they actually invested in, um, well, basically more or less trying to understand the mind from a very different perspective. A disembodied perspective. What's the mind from a disembodied... Uh, a, a, what's the mind when it enters the state of death and near-death experiences? What's the, where's the where does the mind go? Is there a thing called the soul? Now, now, these are very real things that the NSA started exploring back in the 1970s. And it persisted into the 1980s. And actually, they ended up finding out some information back in the 1980s that kind of, blew, kind of started blowing people away, you know, within your organization. Now, all, all this is stuff I didn't find out until I actually started doing research in the organization until it was about 2003 when I, I started getting hold of the internal documents and I started understanding what the philosophies of, you know, for the NSA and what, what caused the... Um, I mean, I had heard that they had originally been kind of like buddy-buddy and everything, um, but I'd never heard about uh, what, what caused the rift in between the two. Well, I mean, this is it. It just came down to the CAA couldn't serve the technological needs that were being, at, being required of it, so the NSA actually found different avenues to be able to achieve the results that they were, uh, that they were looking into, which directly directly caused a lack of dependency on the CIA and its resources. Well, this, this at this point, it, this is uh, really what's responsible for the acceleration of the understanding of the human mind. You know, they ended up uh, going through and they, they did all kinds of different research and everything about um, every phenomena that, uh, that's ever been documented from a mind perspective. Um, and this 
and this kind of like goes hand in hand, you know, with um, understanding why Germany and Nazi Nazi Germany in World War II at the end of World War II started pursuing occult technology. Part of the reason for this is just because they ended up <coughs> at, at this point. Um, the suspicion was they were actually on a similar trajectory that the NSA was on. So, what? Um, what? Th here's the chief problem. Chief problem is too much information and not enough storage space, terrestrial storage space, to actually store it on. That was chief problem number one. Now, and chief problem number two was the ability to be able to, on a real-time basis, sift through and react to that information and respond accordingly on a real-time basis. Now, to have this information, you saw the net result that what happened during 9-11 uh, and the inability to be able to react to this information on a real-time basis. So by the time 2001 came along, they still did not have that capability. They were still going through the processes of research, trying to understand, you know, the things that they were got, had, got, had gone through, you know, and they, com they co took a completely different direction than the CIA did in order to arrive to the same location in the end, you know, but for very, very different reasons altogether. So what ended up happening was um, the, the NSA actually started diving into um, the history of magic. And this is actually kind of my obsession with it, too. Um, they started diving into alchemy. They started diving into metallurgy. Um, they started di diving into um, what, what created technology altogether to begin with, uh, the first technological advancements. Um, what, what was fire when it originally came out? Um, and what, what actually caused the formation of the planets? You know, so they started diving through not just the history of, of this planet and, and where our storage space came from, you know, but uh, they are more interested in, in um, why is it there's limitations in the construct of physical matter and what we can actually store, and why can't we uh, we actually have more uh, storage space and everything for all the all the information that we we have, you know, because theoretically, um, if we're doing our equations right. There should be plenty of matter in this universe and everything in order to be able to store all the information that we've actually acquired. What we've acquired should be just the fundamental tip of the iceberg, and we should be able to store it, you know, particularly with what we knew about material technology back then and, and being able to store things. You know, they actually had quantum technology back in the 1970s. So they should have theoretically been able to store information down at, at the, uh, the subatomic sub level. But for some reason, they were finding that there was, there was a disjoint between what was being techno technologically offered by the CIA versus um, what was publicly made available. And publicly avail public availability wasn't that far lagging what was actually available to the, you know, uh, by, you know, through the uh, CIA and everything. And uh, why was there such little lag time uh, between that and not only that, but also... Um, why did it seem like from all the physical calculations and everything there was something that was being hidden you know that there that there was more that was out there and more capabilities you know that uh, that were actually being made available to the NSA so anyways long story short um, this this holy grail pursuit of of storage I mean that's really what it was all about 
you know, the funny thing is, most of the research that was done by the NSA for the first um, 20 years, I mean, most of the big budget stuff and everything, was based on two primary things. Increasing processor capabilities and increasing um, increasing the uh, the storage capacities, you know, just simply be able to be able to handle the information. A and the reason for this is because they just wanted the capability to be able to search this information, index this information, and uh, and have a physical storage mechanism to be able to achieve this on. Isn't that incredible? That basically the first 20 years that, uh, you know, from this point on, so it's about 1970, you know, all the way to about 1989, 1990. I would go so far to say probably about 1989 when the fall of the wall happened. Um, at about that point, that's one of the first times that we were able to actually do something with the information that we ended up having where President Reagan worked with the NSA in order to basically stop the, uh, you know, to dismantle the wall. You know, that was an informational thing that was done across all three, uh, across the presidency, the CIA and the NSA. All three agencies, or uh, basically the NSA and, a and CIA as agencies, along with the president, worked in combination with the, uh, the media here in the, in the United States in order to basically, you know, show the wa that the wall had fallen. You know, and this is something that, it was a remarkable event because it was a coordinated effort you know, that was made possible by the CIA and the media connections that they had, the NSA, and the information that we had discovered through our own private research and everything, you know, and, and of course, the presidency's advocacy behind it all, too. Had a wonderful man that was president back then that uh, ended up making sure that all this stuff happened and everything. So, anyways, um, the, the whole concept of mind control and everything has, has been um, in part about trying to understand um, what creates a human mind. Um, why do humans do what they do? Can they be reprogrammed in much the same way, way that you do in Westworld and things like that? And um, more or less, you know, death. What World's Warcraft style death. Um, answers to question like what is life after death and that kind of stuff and um, I'm going to be completely honest with you you're not going to like the answers um, you're absolutely not going to like the answers and uh, the reason I say that is um, we've found answers to every question when it comes, comes down to life and death that's out there reincarnation, karma um all that stuff. Now that that's kind of the problem that I have. I've I've gone through all this stuff, and I've I've learned the secrets, you know, of basically the universe. Now I can answer I can answer definitively, you know, it, the answer to is there life after death. I can answer definitively the answer to um, reincarnation. You know, is it possible? And if so, what is it? I can answer definitively um, why do people see a white light? You know, um, particularly when they have near-death experiences and everything. You know, what is that bright, shiny light that you see when you get hit hard enough or something like that? You've taken head damage. You know, what, uh, what causes the human brain to actually you know, lose memories, you know, amnesia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and all that kind of stuff and everything.
And um, here's the thing. The one thing I've realized over the years is there's a lot of things that exist that there's a song that uh, it's Hotel California. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Some dance to remember, some dance to forget. And I'm I'm not going to tell you all those secrets and everything for a reason right now. You know, I'm going to allude to them. And I'm going to remind you of songs and that kind of stuff. And I'm going to be very clear, you know, to you that knowing these secrets doesn't empower you. To some degree, it can drive you crazy. I mean, I know it did me. And part of the reason I believe in secrets and the necessity for agencies like the NSA and CIA to work um, and do their own thing separately and for a relatively large budget to be thrown their way to achieve these things is just because what they present are ideas and information and new possibilities. Now, if I allude to the fact that there isn't any true death, would you understand the necessity to be able to create new ideas and information in a structured way? Or, or would you be the type of person that would say, oh, let's just create inf infinite information. Let's blow up fucking everything. You know, at that point we have everything to work from. It doesn't work that way. Eventually you'll come back around from it all and you'll be right back where you are right now. Scratching your head. Saying, I had that thought one time. I don't know why I never did it. But the answer is, you did do it in one reality. And the answer is, because of how memories work, because of how we collectively have created our timeline and everything. We reconstituted your, your ideas and your memories, and you may be listening to me right now. And you may be thinking I'm an asshole. But there's an asshole with, uh, that actually has something to say. The fact of the matter is, I know a lot of you um, people from different countries that you're listening to me and you're watching everything I say. And uh, I know you don't like the, my country. I, don't, I know you don't like what I represent. And what people like me represent. I know some of you do, though. And, and that, for me, really does, does matter. Now, I myself, I'm not fond of war. I'm not fond of strife. I'm not fi fond of um, hurting people. At least by my definition of it. I mean, I've caused some emotional problems, you know, for people in the past, but... It's certainly been reciprocated. And it's never to the, been to the extreme, at least within my lifetime, to my awareness and everything. You know, I've lived a life that uh, I felt like I've, I've done and I've been a good person. So, 
know, when it comes down to the mind control and that kind of stuff and everything, <coughs> um, yes, there are robots, you know, that actually live in our midst. There's androids, there's terminators, there's, you know, there's more, more shit that goes on in this world around us, you know, and uh, media itself is nothing more than a snapshot of all the possibilities that actually go into this potpourri called the United States and called this planet Earth. Mind controls more or less the order that we create from all the information, from all the ideas, from all the different possibilities that life could be. And it's the order that we have collectively chosen and that I individually have approved. Now that, that I understand may come across as narcissism and, you know, may be a reason to rise up against me, you know, when it comes down to the belief in a collective system and this concept called the greater good. But there's a fundamental flaw with the greater good. And that's that's this little concept called What's in it for me? Eventually, the, the concept of the greater good has a tendency to disassociate you as an individual from that, and eventually you end up basically, after a long enough period of time, self-destructing. I know, first end. You know, I mean, I literally did self-destruct. I actually tried taking my own life, and that's all of a sudden when I, I found out <laughs> the whole concept of reincarnation, um, along with the other concepts that just kind of blew me away. I had to seek out a different identity. You know, one to take on the, the new concepts that I was already starting to learn at a much more different pace than I'd ever anticipated before. Ever like, gone through before. Concept of Q. You know, that's the whole premise behind it. Okay, so... The previous identity, you know, my legal name, Brian, you know, as a mortal and everything. Sure, life is funky and hunky-dory and everything and, you know, persistent and predictable. And, you know, as part of an apparatus that basically had a something, you know, for producti productivity output called GDP. You know, and it was my responsibility to contribute to that GDP to basically do what? That was the ultimate question I started coming to. What the fuck am I doing this for? Why? Why am I contributing this thing called productivity to this thing called GDP? What, what am I contributing for? Then all of a sudden I started realizing. You know, once I tried taking my life. The concept of Q is a concept of mind. The brain, the physical state of being, and the physical capacity and everything, the accumulation of wealth, and, you know, the uh, abilities, you know, that money buys and that kind of stuff as a tangible substance and everything. You know, it segues, it transitions. You know, you start realizing this transition and everything. I started realizing that transition. Once I started realizing this transition, I started realizing that uh, to some degree when I use that piece of paper called a dollar, you know, or 500 of them, or a thousand, I could command people with this. I can tell, you know, that, that woman, you know, to take off her clothes, and because I hand her these green pieces of paper, she will do exactly what I tell her to do. 
you know, I hand somebody enough of those dollars, and I had more than one person, I mean, offer to uh, take an ex-wife's life while I was having some problems with. One flat-out offer, he goes, give me $500 and I'll do it. And I said, no, dude. You know, and I'm just like, I'm going, you're not serious. Why do you think I'm not serious? And the guy totally was. <laughs> I mean, I started realizing, it's just like, wow, some people I just don't know. Money is a, um, it's an interesting tool, you know, but it's a, it's a way, it's a method, it's a means to be able to command people to do things. But what the force is, it's a lesson. You know, this is actually the interesting thing that I discovered above and beyond what, what the NSA had taught me about information. And that's everything that's contained in media isn't just a fabrication. It's, it's all real, you know? I, I've said that before many times. It's all a lesson. You know, so money itself is something called potential energy. You know, it's, it's in its raw state. So when you have that money sitting in your pocket or something like that, that energy influences you in very real ways. That energy wants to be spent. It wants to be directed to something. It doesn't want to be isolated to one single spot. It wants to keep moving. It wants to keep generating. It wants to keep creating more of itself. That's how it reproduces. So as that money spreads from one person to another, that money spreads and it's mu it wor works in much the same way that a virus does. And I'm not, this is a horrible analogy. You know, but as potential energy, that energy will continue expanding its presence by basically infecting other people through their, through their own wallets. But that money wants to be spent on things. Absolutely wants. So that want of that money creates pressure in energy. If you want to analogize it to the force, it creates pressure in the force. And that pressure exerts physical pressure through your own body, through your own mind. So the mind actually receives it, receives a connection from the money, and that, that connection through the money, from the money, basically says, I need to get out of your pocket, I am an expendable source, you need to spend me on something, you need to give me to somebody else, and whatever it takes in order to do that, you know, and at that that point the mind is influenced in such a way that it's reprogrammed it takes its existing program that basically sits in an idle state and it's actually influenced in such a way to basically say how can I get rid of this well I can't give it away because it's valuable so at this point the next thing that the mind does is it actually starts launching into different ways that it can actually achieve the, the end result, which is basically alleviating yourself of that presence of the money. So the mind, naturally, will actually start spinning up. What the brain 
and at that point it'll actually start trying to find ways to to decrease the size of your wallet now now this is the interesting thing I myself have learned about uh, about the mind the way it works I, I've analogized it to a program so your computer is constantly receiving input and output from various sources you know so when you drive by I don't know if you've ever closed your eyes while somebody is driving and everything but you know you know that there's a food place right next right next to you not just because of you know prior knowledge or something like that but something inside you clicks when you're closing your eyes for some reason and all of a sudden something inside you clicks and now you've got growls in your stomach and you look around and boom there's a KFC over there well the mind in its idle states constantly receiving information stimulation from the environment around you you know that stimulation aka KFC satiates that, that stimulation but here's the, here's the interesting thing KFC will also create the demand it's a restaurant and it's a powerful enough restaurant and everything that it can actually exert the psycholo psychological need the dependency on it because it's a food source simple proximity will actually create will make that happen so if you've ever felt hungry you know and you're in the proximity of a whole bunch of different restaurants or something like that you know or you're coming up to and you might just basically be driving down the road and all of a sudden you're you sit there and you go huh I'm hungry and boom magically a mile ahead as you're driving down this long road that you haven't seen a restaurant for miles a mile ahead there's a sign Shoney's you know there's some other restaurants off to the side hey let's stop off over there I'm hungry well this is the interesting thing about energy energy itself sits in certain places and it does certain things so Shoney's is like a beacon you know in energy and you don't need to see the sign your body will react to this energy and be influenced by this energy and at that point that will actually create the trigger that will actually inspire you that will basically treat you like Pavlov and at that point will make it so where boom you want something to eat and the potential options are all right there in front of you well and that's actually what I had to learn is how to overcome those those feelings you know those those constant barrage of things that were actually happening to me like that all the time around me so that potential energy in the pocket is another energy source that wants to be spent and this is the interesting thing that I've learned about energy you know so let's say you close your eyes and uh, you walk around well after a while you're gonna get hungry you know and all of a sudden you're you're gonna find yourself directed to a food source that's right next door and everything now you, it's nice to believe that you were responsible for you know basically saying oh, I'm I'm reacting to my stomach right you know I'm hungry this is why I'm that way well you're not realizing that your stomach is actually being stimulated already by the environment around you you know so had you not been in the proximity of that uh, restaurant you wouldn't have gotten hungry it's, I mean, it's really kind of weird, you know, how it works like that. So, 
this is uh this is the interesting thing I found about how the mind works. You know, so now the the CIA and the NSA they had been more concerned about um, active forms of of hypnosis and manipulation. Well, I learned this as I was going through and pursuing my marketing degree. I started realizing that these marketing campaigns they're they're very very biased and and a lot of them are ineffective. But if I start paying attention to them from an energy perspective, at that point I started realizing that that's where the real power is. The power is in, is in understanding how that energy works. How it actually creates the triggers and stimulates the body in such a powerful way that the body itself overrides the mind. And the mind itself turns around and says, here's where we're going. And you just simply go along for the ride. So when I actually made the comment about uh, giving people the opportunity of free will and everything, this is how I took over the country. You have free will. But I control the stimulus. The way energy works here, I constructed this reality. The triggers that make you do what you do, at least here in my country, and part of being a programmer is knowing. fucking everything how is it you get people to react like robots without being robots how do you encourage free will and free expression but guide behavior accordingly how do you eliminate the ghetto homelessness you know that occurs the people that are stealing and thieving and causing problems with the society. Undermining. Flippantly without caring about the world that you built. Without systematically taking him out. That's a lesson I had to learn from Hitler himself. understand hatred, where it comes from, why it's there, but just don't react to it. React in better ways. Society can take care of the problem itself, and it will when I leave. This is something I have absolute faith in. As I get my capabilities, you know, as Q, one of the things I do, I do wonder I'm constantly telling myself that I did this and I went through this before about 50,000 years ago. 
that a lot of my memories of how to do what I do and program reality and all this stuff and everything are because of what I went through 50,000 years ago. But as I keep moving forward, the more and more I realize how all this feels new. Like I'm learning it for the first time. Like that was something I told myself for the first part of the journey on becoming. Just basically lead me to believe that uh, I already knew how to do everything that I'm, I'm already starting to do anyways. But Everybody's effectively being mind-controlled, even me. And I think when it comes down to it, those androids in Westworld, you get to the point that you start realizing, you know, you look at, um, what's his name, Bill Murray in uh, Groundhog Day. It's estimated that the guy spent 35 years in that causal time loop. 35 years living the same day over and over again. They eventually came to believe, you know, that making a series of the right actions is what eventually broke them out. But there's no evidence of that. It's my belief that we as in, us as in, this multiverse and all possibilities and everything have been doing this for an uncountable number of years. There's no number that can quantify the trillions upon trillions, you know, to the trillionth power and even more, you know, amount of time that humans have been ex in existence and living lives and trying out various things and different configurations of this planet and that kind of stuff. So... I don't know. You know, taking control of the mind is something I believe that the that the collective whole just flat out wants. Most people don't want to think. Most people want to fall back asleep, be in their stupor. If they have 35,000 years that goes by between the last time that they slept and in that th 35,000 years, they, they were a prostitute, they were a gambler, they were um, a, a bullfighter, they were a mount on a car. Um, it doesn't fucking matter. When they return back to their body in that form, 35,000 years you know, after they went to sleep, I don't think most people care. And that's what I think happens. We fall asleep when we wake up again. 35,000 million, 8 billion years later. In our particular configuration of the universe, that we're at varying degrees of learning how to control it. There's going to be those that oppose us. It's like echoes of our own mind. And they're going to have their own reasons for it. They're going to feel... Probably not going to feel anything. It's probably just going to be something that's been programmed. 
they're programmed to dislike you know and it's a program that's not that much different than the Westworld programs that they're actually running within those androids or whatever <coughs> so 2003 rolls around and at that point um, central services was created uh, in part because of um, the Patriot uh, Act and the need to create a bridge between the CIA and the NSA and uh, make amends and teach the NSA about the CIA and the CIA about the NSA and where they stood and uh, why they were so wildly different in appearance after such what, what was a seemed to be such a relatively short period of time. And um, and really what the motivations of each organization was. So, 2005, I actually attended a meeting in Portland that uh, included my director and a couple other people about how to move forward with that organization and everything, Central Services, that I was to serve as a key part of and uh, more or less promote my perspective. And I have been a firm believer in the mind and, you know, and uh, while I'm... I'm somewhat a fan of the concept of, of the Matrix and everything. I'm I'm more um, more in line with the belief that we create our own reality rather than the reality is a program thing, and uh, that's kind of the position I advocated. Now it's really important that uh, when you're working for an intelligence agency and everything, that you have a philosophical belief, you know, about uh, about life in general. Um, and also life after death, or at least uh, at least some kind of notion, some kind of concept about why you're here. And uh, I, I myself, I had been constantly fishing for them, but one thing that I had always stuck by was I just just enjoyed having fun. Now, this is the one one thing that was always and always has been absolute in my life. I didn't get addicted to cocaine because of the fact that uh, I've got an addictive personality. I got addicted to cocaine because it was fucking fun. You know, so... Sex, same way. Programming, same thing. Um, that for me was my philosophy. It didn't matter if I didn't have a belief system that was set up for what was going to happen after I supposedly died. It didn't matter that I didn't fully even believe, you know, 100% in the concept of death. But the simple fact of the matter is I had a pretty convicted belief system that uh, was was predicated on the desire that I'm here in life, period, and the story to have fun, to enjoy myself. So, anyways, in 2005, we had that meeting, and Central Services kind of was formalized, and the relationship between the CIA and the NSA was more or less um, maturing past the 1971 to 1975 um, division that ended up happening. The CIA was interested in understanding 
the mind and the concepts of the mind and the possibilities that were introduced through logical and conceptual and abstract ideas and that kind of stuff rather than the firm um, basis of uh, modern physics and and that kind of stuff and uh, you can see some of the stuff um, that they're still having problems with when it comes down to uh, some of the science sites and everything they're trying to feed into the science sites and everything some of their philosophies and their concepts but they're still missing the mark when it comes down to the understanding of the quantum world you know quantum worlds it's ideological it's it's um, conceptual it's abstract it's you know it's it's formative it's you know it's not concrete you know and uh, to somebody that's a uh, that's strictly concrete in nature and concrete in belief system you're gonna have a hard time understanding that so in any case um, that time rolls around 2005 and off and on um, I mean more or less it was just uh, it was a relationship that I got to see you know and that's actually when I started understanding the history you know of of MK Ultra, its association with the CIA um, what caused the problems between the NSA to begin with you know and uh, and actually what cemented the NSA's position as a uh, as a force that was to be reckoned with just equally along with the uh, the CIA rather than you know being a a, sub a subordinate organization it actually found itself in equal grounds so it, um, I got to find out a lot about the history and all that stuff and and uh, I had to share some of the ideas and concepts of you know how I you know information technology worked and uh, particular SQL and data data manipulation and object-oriented type behavior and the applications of psychology and artificial intelligence and heuristic learning systems and weighted algorithms and aging systems and all this other fun stuff and everything that was directly directly modeled after the human mind and that uh, that in part led to my eventual uh, walking away in 2011. So if you're wondering, you know, from a mind control perspective and everything, if you're really interested in understanding mind control, um, my advice is... <laughs> shoot yourself. <laughs> no, not really. I'm trying to think of a good idea. <laughs> you are capable of anything. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not more impossible means I'm possible. That's just the reality. The discovery of the mind and the capabilities of what's possible with the mind and everything, there's no limitations to it. Becoming Q is... And it's like the oracle said in the Matrix. It's like breathing. It's like knowing. 
Sorry I'm a little moody tonight. It's just, uh, it's been an interesting day, and this topic didn't go quite as well as I had planned and everything, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but if you're interested in both the CIA and the NSA, the primary, um, primary reason, uh, the primary goal of the CIA is the acquisition of technology um, and also the distribution of this technology in coordination with more or less, you know, government-based leaders and that kind of stuff. Um, CIA ultimately has authority on this. So they're not under the dictate of, of the uh, president. And the same thing holds true for the NSA. And the elected leader for the NSA is, is and will never be made public. And it's one thing that's... You know, you might see leaders that have been put down on Wikipedia and that kind of stuff and everything. Well, guess what? That just simply ain't true. The elected leaders that are actually part of the NSA, that are actually leading the NSA, is and will never be made public for a reason. And we learned that lesson by basically watching director after director after director fall, fall within public affairs fodder, you know, and the CIA and everything. And it's ended the last one was with John Brennan and everything, and, you know, the director of the CIA is not supposed to technically be under the thumb of the president. The CIA is an agency in much the same way that the FBI is. The difference is the FBI is subservient to the president, and the whole tough tiff that happened with, um, Oh, what's his name back in the 1930s or 40s or whatever it was? J. Edgar Hoover and all that kind of shit and everything. That that ensured that the FBI would, was and would remain a federal agency and everything, and that it wasn't considered a separate part of the U.S. government. That it was actually part of the executive. <coughs> but unlike um, the CIA, you know, and the NSA, which are are supposed to be, you know, separate organizations that are not led by the U.S. government and everything. They represent the U.S. government, but from different perspectives. So, and, uh, the NSA is more or less, you know, and that's actually one thing that the, that the, um, central services ended up not doing. One of the goals was to attempt to actually create a bridge between the two organizations to make it so where there'd be a reciprocation in technology sharing and that kind of stuff. And um, most people think that central services and part of what what prompted all this was failure, you know, with a 9/11. And that's not the truth. You know, the NSA had come to its own conclusions and reasons for the, what happened, and that was very different. That was one of the first things that we ended up discovering when we had the preliminary meetings with the with the CIA. Was the CIA had its own conclusions about it, and uh, as opposed to the NSA, and um, the fundamental philosophical differences that uh, the two organizations had was not um, was not deemed something that uh, was surmountable that uh, could actually cause the two organizations to come back together again and actually act act as one with the same culture. So that just wasn't going to happen. 
So at that point, the NSA actually made a command decision not to not to get into a a um, full full on technological sharing back with the CIA again. So what ended up happening was uh, we ended up uh, getting into a reciprocative agreement with partial sharing. So that basically means that the CIA and the NSA would work together. Um, we'd negotiate um, on technological developments and everything that we would share. But uh, we wouldn't just outright share information or everything just or, or share technology just because of the fact that they were a U.S.-based organization and everything. You know, we knew better than that. So that was one thing that came out of central services and everything was just uh, a shared agreement, you know, to share some but not everything. And um, I'm, you know, kind of. I think that actually is a uh, pretty successful, and that's that's probably how things will continue as a result too. So, anyways, long story short, mind control. I mean, if you take a look at hi- hypnosis in all its forms, and uh, and if you understand that when you're under hypnosis, the things that you may experience uh, may be continuous with your belief system. And you have continuity in so much as, let's take the World of Warcraft character and say that that World of Warcraft character is actually a real living thing that never experiences death. Now, from our perspective, we may see death occurring all the time for that World of Warcraft character. 15, 20, 30 times a day, he gets slaughtered. Now, that character, from their perspective, maybe they only have memory of going to certain locations and trying different things out. And all of a sudden, you know, you, rather than making a, a right turn, um, or rather than running into, a, a, into an area, Instead, you're cautious. Well, that cautiousness comes from the prior experience as you, as a person playing the ad avatar, having gone through this situation before, saying, I ain't going all the way back there and everything just to actually get my ass handed to me again. So you exercise prudence and you don't do it again. Well, this character that's actually living this life just basically feels this as more or less internally. You know, it's a stimulus that basically says, well, hey, be cautious. Now, you don't know where that comes from internally. You know, you don't know that there's somebody actually playing you as an avatar. Well, the same thing holds true for, you know, for you as a hypnosis person, as, as somebody being put under hypnosis, too. Let's say you go and somebody puts you under hypnosis and everything. You're in hypnosis for half an hour. And, you know, that person has you dancing around with the butt plug, um, dressed up like a peacock and uh, giving him a blowjob and everything. And half an hour later, he's sitting on his couch uh, or he's sitting on his chair opposite you. You know, you're fully clothed again at that point. And uh, at that point, you're waking up. Well, for you, you know, you've you've had this experience and everything where, you know, um, maybe he sets the clock back and everything. half an hour, you know, so for you, it appears like like it's simultaneous. Maybe for some reason, you decide not to check the clock. Well, not only do you not have any memory of that event, but this whole thing, you know, that ended up happening, you know, as far as all this weird shit and everything, um, 
you know, just basically makes us aware, you know, maybe this violates your ethical values. And if you found out about it, you'd be so up uproared about it that you actually might might go out and potentially seek to actually incur violence on this person or everything. So I'm going to mention something that uh, I probably shouldn't mention, but there's a movie that came out, I think it was in 2008 or 2009, and the movie is called I Spit on Your Grave. Now, this is one of the first things that the NSA ended up working with the CIA on, and uh, I wasn't a part of this, but I, I got to hear about the results of this, uh, this relationship and everything. So the NSA, or the CIA, was actually actively working with... Um, basically rebuilding memories and and uh and altering memories through substances and uh and cia has always had a history with substances and everything and uh, they were interested in, in seeing if they could physically reprogram somebody's memories and everything well the nsa um has always tended to be more concerned about the psyche of people because they understand the implications on the mind and that kind of stuff so they end up basically saying, "Okay, you know, here's here's what we have. Um, we've got a woman that was that's been catatonic, and uh, she um, was brutally raped um, to the point of uh, of near death. Um, we've got everything on video. We've got the five uh, five men that were responsible for it. Each one of them was systematically killed. Now, the woman just prior to actually doing this." appeared to have totally lost control of her own body she appeared to be a walking zombie after all this happened and everything and at this point with the video that we have and everything what we'd like to do is work with you the NSA or the CIA to basically rebuild the memories and to make it so where this woman is an actress instead in a movie and disassociate her from those memories and and bring her out of this catatonic state. Now, nobody blames her for what she did going around killing these these people. You know, um helicopter going overhead. Nobody blames her for what she did. You know, it was brutal, it was vicious what she did in response to what they did, but what they did was was equally if not more so brutal you know to her and you know to some degree every everybody you know agencies involved with this um, those that actually you know learned about the murders to begin with and and those few that were aware of the, the entirety of the situation were utterly repulsed by these men's at men's actions and each one of them systematically believed that these men got exactly what they deserved and she went around and brutally, brutally murdered each one of them after she ended up uh, escaping this entire conflict and everything. And the moment that she ended up getting done, she entered a state of, of, of catatonicness. You know, so basically she was, um, she seemed like she was consciously aware, but she wasn't picking up on anything. And she had been that way for nearly a, a year by the time that the, uh, by the time the NSA had actually, you know, decided to work with the CIA on it. So CI turned around and said, okay, well, we've got an idea. Um, we'll turn this over to Hollywood. We'll, uh, we'll work with our people, a couple of our people over in Hollywood, and we'll turn this into a movie production. And at first, the NSA didn't like the idea, you know, and, and the whole idea was more or less to basically disassociate her from the memories, um, turn the movie 
into or turn the uh, her her life's event into a horror movie and at that point turn around and sell it as a horror movie so and and then also work with the technology that the CIA had to basically restructure her brain to try to actually wake her up into consciousness and to lead her to believe that she had had a life history of uh, of being an, being an actress well the 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 positive thing that the CIA had to their benefit was um, she had a father that loved her dearly, and uh, but she had left all her friends from high school and everything in the dust when she ended up going on to pursue her journalism career, and um, you know she just basically she you know all she had was her father and mom had passed away, so she really didn't have that many friends and uh, no family you know to speak or you know basically her father was the only one that she had familiarly to speak with, so she had very few people, and her father once she once he heard of this, um, he didn't like the idea at first, but he's just like anything to get my daughter back, you know. So what they ended up doing was they ended up reprogramming in a literal sense. They re- restructured, reconfigured, rewired at the neurological level, um, at the neuron level. They rewired the woman. They rebuilt her memories. They not just rebuilt them, but they also they reprogrammed her mind to lead her to believe that she had been an actress and she had pursued acting. And part of the reason that she ended up uh, not having that many friends and everything was because she had gotten so involved with Hollywood and everything. And and, uh, she ended up leaving everybody behind to move out west and everything to become an actress. So, movie comes out, and she's still catatonic and everything. It's released, and the reviews on it aren't that good and some of the things that ended up happening she starts to oddly enough recover from it well this is actually you know what what some of the interesting things that come came out of all this was this realization as she started recovering she remembered her life as being an actress now what ended up happening was she actually started creating new memories about her life as being an actress she started creating new foundations. She started telling herself new stories and everything. You know, so as she's recovering and everything, she's going through the process. She was led to believe that she was in a car accident shortly after the filming of this movie and everything. Um, movie got, you know, it did decently in the box office, yada, yada, yada. And uh, she's going through rehab and everything. And she's like, can you remember who you are? And she's starting to remember. And, and she's got these memories of appearing in this brutal film, you know, as an actress and everything everything and you know and for her it's conflicted you know she doesn't know it's just like wow it felt so real you know but yeah you know I know I'm an actress and she went on with it for a while well this persisted and one of the interesting things that actually came as a result of it is because of the power of the belief of people not only that of um, of her belief what ended up happening next was the weirdest thing that, uh, that had ever been documented in the NSA and the CIA's history concerning mind and time. And this is actually what caused my investigation of time. The movie I Spit on Your Grave in 1978 came out. So, let's be clear about this. There was no movie in 1978 called I Spit in Your Grave that had come out prior to this point. And then all of a sudden, this movie in 2008, 2009 occurs. And this movie in 1978 is now backdated and has just occurred back then. 
Do you see the problem here? You have a movie that all sources on the internet actually indicate. And at this point, this is immediately when the NSA started suspecting that there's tampering with, with um, global information sources by foreign sources. And that's actually when the NSA started getting ultra paranoid about things. And that's about the same time I ended up starting to say, I'm, I want to get out of here. Because <laughs> um, I was actually one of the ones that was investigating some of the information technology and how this movie could have actually come to exist. And it was a legitimate movie. I ended up watching both of them. And I'm just like, I mean, seeing this girl brutally raped wasn't easy. And it's just like, I'm just like going... I mean, I, I think it's a wonder that that girl thinks that that entire thing isn't real. You know, just because I've never, I've never seen acting that appears that real. You know, and for an actress to actually act that real, it's just like, she either has to think she's extremely talented or, you know, um, I mean, man, you know, to appear naked in front of everybody and, you know, to basically have her ass and, you know, some guy you know, acting, quote, unquote, like he's fucking her up the ass and everything, you know, it's just like, on a, on a camera for a horror movie, um, it was just, it was brutal, it was tough to watch and everything, so, but, but then this backdated occurrence happened, and at that point, that started in earnest my investigation of, of temporal nature of, of information sources, wasn't my belief. I found absolutely no evidence that that our sources were being um, manipulated by foreign sources. No evidence whatsoever. I personally thought it was paranoia, and I thought that paranoia was just like the paranoia that caused two thousand or you know two thousand and one, nine eleven to happen. Now the CIA was the one that was insisted this is terrorism and everything. You know, I myself, you know, working for the NSA, I didn't believe the same thing. And then when, you know, this happened, and all of a sudden the NSA became convinced that this is terrorism, that this is foreign sources and everything, fucking with our information sources. I didn't believe it. Flat out didn't believe it. I believed, you know, that, uh, our, that something was going on from a temporal perspective. And once I saw that 1978 thing, I ended up saying, wait a second. There's something more that could potentially be going, be going on here. You know, sure, the CIA could be messing with us, but so can other companies. But take a look at the movie. Right, if you watch the movie, it's perfectly placed. You know, um, people are acting and you know, the entire thing, the entirety, the entirety of the production is spot on with everything that's produced in the 1970s. Filmmaking style and everything. The movie appeared for all intents and purposes perfectly authentic. Well, I've seen some recreations and reproductions like Quentin Tarantino's, you know, shit and everything. And that guy's a, a great, you know, he's good with what he does. And leveraging digital technology, he's, he's had a bitch of a time trying to recreate, you know, tech, anything based in the 1970s and before. I'm, I'm of the opinion that, uh, I, I was of the opinion, and this is a very isolated opinion, that um, time itself 
what is was itself constantly being uh, revised and that manipulation of the mind and memories was actually responsible for uh, creating this and that that's what we were saying a collective uh, belief that this this event was real created a backdate for some reason of this other 1978 version so in any case um, whatever reason you believe you know that all this happened and everything you know and the nature of the mind and time and that kind of stuff there's something called the temporal lobe which every brain has and that temporal lobe is actually responsible for the chronological maintenance of events that actually happen relative to the person that's actually experiencing these events. So when I experience events and everything chronologically, um, those events are going to be different than the ones that you experience. I might may have some estimations, some predictions and everything about what you do when you're away from me and everything. Um, and in, in a chronological sense, those are actually going to be, you know, the chronology of things will be stored in a temporal loop. Well, brain, manipulation of the brain and everything alters the, the linkings, the physical bindings between these, you know, between the chronological sense of events and everything. And it stands to reason if there's a collective nature and a collective mind that's actually formed, you know, then at that point you get enough people that collectively believe in something in the same way a, um, a Bitcoin uh, can actually segment itself and create two different segments in the same way that a peer-to-peer -peer network can actually start disagreeing with something. I believe that the human brain, particularly a set of linked human brains, has the same capacity to fundamentally shift based on two competing chronologies. So that for me is what ultimately led me to come to self-discovery of and self-identity of being Q. The mind itself, my mind, your mind, we're all different. It creates those memories and everything and how we relate those memories and everything. Ultimately, the girl did discover, you know, the truth. And she ended up getting furious with everybody who was involved with the, the entire project and everything. And uh, so ultimately, she ended up more or less discovering the truth, you know, by basically, they couldn't cover all the loose ends with her friends and everything. They tried, you know, but it just didn't work. It all fell apart when she started contacting some people because of the perceived success for her movie and everything. So, she discovered the truth and at that point was offended, um, came to understand it, and she came to terms with it and everything. And uh, I actually met the girl when I first got out here um, to uh, over here to Starbucks. She was actually, um, I shouldn't say I met her, I saw the girl. And uh, she, was, uh, she was a shade of the person that she was in the movie. She was vibrant, she was young, she was carefree. Um, 
at first and then all of a sudden this event and you can see it in her face and everything that she was definitely wasn't the same person that she was before that she had been fundamentally altered by the event that happened and it's hard once you have somebody that goes through a traumatic event like that you can't really revert it you can't change it but you can move forward and try your damnedest to help them understand that you're trying to help them. And eventually she came to understand. Her animosity went away and she lived on. She went on with her life. She knew she had been forgiven for doing what she did. And the next step in forgiving was forgiving herself. <coughs> so anyways this is wandering around like a snake in the grass so I'm going to cut it and uh, just basically say I will continue these podcasts up in um, up in Portland there'll be a continued conversation about whatever shit that I'm going through I'll be focusing more on the game in the upcoming weeks but of course you know, I'll explain everything that's going on with me and my family and all that shit and everything so 